0: I'm grateful for you, grateful for your witness, your willingness to lift the cup and the bread and say, I believe this. I'm going to ask you to go to Romans chapter 12 right now, if you would. Romans chapter 12, we're going to dive into it in just a second. I just want to reemphasize what uh, Michael mentioned earlier about that short-term missions meeting that's after this service. If you have any interest at all in going to that trip to Mexico this coming spring, you really want to be part of that meeting after the service and, and take an opportunity to slide in there. and. Meet that missions team. You'll be glad that you did. Um, your notes this morning said that we're, uh, if you pulled them out of your bulletin, it said that we're going to do verses 9 through 21. Um, I'll hit the brakes on that. We're only going to do verse 9 this morning. And um, it was Wednesday this week that God kind of smacked me upside the head and said, don't you dare go past this too fast. At verse 9, just hear me on this. This is what it says. Let... Love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil, cling to that which is good." Romans 12:9. Now from there, Paul launches into talking about how you and I are supposed to treat each other, and I couldn't go into that without really bearing down on verse nine. It's going to prick some hearts, and God's going to do what He does. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, he's going to convict. I'm going to show you this morning that what you truly love actually shapes your behavior. What you truly love shapes the way you act, the things that you do. Part of the tension of this reality is that we're individuals who live in this modern world that's constantly pulling against us we see Paul talking about this very issue. Look with me on the screen at Romans 7. You don't have to turn your Bible there. Just look at the way he says this in verse 14. I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I'm doing I do not understand, for I'm not practicing that which I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. You Remember we looked at this in depth, Romans 7. Man, I don't want to do those things. I want to do this. But I keep finding myself falling back into sinful behavior. Yet the reality is the thing that we truly love will shape our behavior over time. We need to bear down in verse 9, and I want to do that with you right after prayer. So let me pray with you about how God's going to speak this morning. Would you join me in that? Father, first and foremost, we thank you so much that we get to study this in freedom without any fear of oppression whatsoever. And we are incredibly fortunate. Recognizing that, God, on, on the heels of what's coming up with the election on Tuesday, we ask that your purposes would be accomplished. This is your nation. And you, you placed us here. All the nations of the earth bow before you. We happen to be fortunate enough to live in a free democracy and with that comes our responsibility. So, God, I ask, I plead that it would be your will that would be done and that we would take this seriously because right now, Father, there's, there's people hiding out in caves to read their Bible. There's people who are whispering in basements around the world. There's people on fishing boats that are scared to death their government's going to find them. And yet we sit here with hundreds of copies of Bibles. Thank you, Father. So that we would take this especially seriously, which you're showing us this morning in Romans. God, that you would convict where you need to convict. I pray for the spirit of power, and that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we would ask that you would do what you do, and you would shape us according to the image of Christ. We pray for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Is there anything more distasteful than a fake? Is there anything more distasteful than fake love? I think not. That's why you find Paul writing what he says here in verse 9. Let love, look at it very closely, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't let love be fake. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Why in the world did he put all three of those sentence structures together? You've got three categories going on there. Why put them right together? Well, you're going to see why this morning. Hypocrisy is absolutely incompatible with agape love. And if you've grown up in the church, you've heard that phrase before, agape. I want to help you understand what he's saying here. He's saying the two cannot coexist. Let me show you an example of that from the Bible. 1 Timothy 1.5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Or here's another one, 2 Corinthians 6.6, 6, in purity and knowledge and patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, that is really attractive. What young woman here wouldn't love a guy who's chasing after her with pure love? Agape love is the highest form of love, the one that's only seeking the welfare of the other person. There's no hypocrisy involved whatsoever. So Paul says, let your love be like that. And he uses this term here to describe without hypocrisy. You see this first Greek word in your notes, anupukatrios. This particular word, you can hear the word hypocrisy in it. It, it, The two, syllable-wise, match up. He's saying, it's got to be without any dishonesty. So if it's that kind of sincerity, it means there's no deception involved whatsoever. So I'm asking the question, is there anything more distasteful than fake love? Now, you and I, we might put up with fake compliments, and we've probably given out a few over our life. We might even endure fake friends, and I bet some of you have some like that. We even tolerate fake food. Tofu comes to mind. (laughs) had somebody after the Saturday night service come up to me and say, when you were a guest at my house, I served you tofu. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's fake, right? But fake love, that just makes you want to gag, doesn't it? Like, ugh, that is so distasteful. Do you think that Jesus can smell fake love? Is it odorous to him? Can he smell it a long way off? Gary just talked us through communion. And in the midst of that, we we recognize that phrase, and we've heard it so many times if you're a church person. You almost tune it out when he says, in the night that Jesus was, what church? Betrayed. Betrayed. Judas is the absolute hypocrite of the Scriptures. How distasteful was that kiss when Judas reached in to kiss Jesus on the cheek, thereby betraying him to the Roman guards, selling him for 30 pieces of silver. By the way, if you didn't know, the lowest price you could sell a human for in the first century, the price of a slave, a damaged slave at that. 30 pieces of silver, and his hypocrisy is unmasked. And so I'm saying to you, what you truly love shapes your behavior. They did it with Judas. And if you think not, just watch a young teenage boy pursuing a young teenage girl. And all of a sudden, they're taking showers when their mom didn't ask them to. And they're volunteering to wash the car. Because what you love shapes your behavior. So Paul's using this phrase, agape love. That one's not in your notes. I know many people are familiar with it, but just bear down on what he's saying here. That kind of love that is without any selfishness, completely dedicated, self-giving, and because the concept of it represented unselfishness, the word actually wasn't even used in the Greek language. If you go back to the first century, the pagans, they didn't even pronounce that form of love. They would talk about porneo love. They were big on pornography. They would talk about phileo love, which is the love of brother brother, fondness towards each other. But agape love? Not in the Roman world. You are considered weak. You, you were subclass if you had agape love. It was absolutely despised that you would love somebody like that expecting nothing in return. Yet the New Testament is elevating it to the supreme feature under which all others are considered. So agape centers on the needs of the one love. Now hear this. Check this really clearly. Agape love will pay the cost whatever the cost is, to help the one in need. Does that not sound like Jesus? See, that's, that's the highest form. Agape will pay the cost, whatever the cost is, in order to meet the need. So that kind of genuine love is so integral to who you are as a Christ follower. Check this if you lifted the cup this morning. It's so integral that it actually becomes the measuring rod for authentic salvation. Look at me on the screen. First John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we agape the brethren. He who does not agape abides in death. So God's saying really clearly, this isn't Mark saying this, God's word says, you don't demonstrate that. You've got no claim on eternity. You can't say, I'm destined for heaven. God's saying, if you don't love that way. So Jesus ramps it up. He's unmistakably clear. A group of individuals gathered around him, and, and they're curious about what he's thinking. He's incredibly popular at this point, And they say to challenge him, what's the first and greatest commandment? Jesus responds in the book of Matthew, the first and greatest commandment, I bet many of you know this exactly the way he says it in Matthew 22, you shall agape the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and it doesn't stop there. Here's the next part of the greatest commandment, and you shall love your agape, your neighbor, as yourself. More than any spiritual gift, and we talked about that a lot last week, more than any spiritual gift, love says, if you don't have that, you you disqualify all the gifts. So Paul writes in Corinthians, I may have the gift of tongues, but if I don't have love, it amounts to nothing. It's of no value whatsoever. So it's not surprising when you come to the book of Galatians chapter 5, it says the very first fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is what, church? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Love's at the top of the list. So Paul's saying, you got that mindset. You're going to be successful in abhorring evil. Why does he link these thoughts? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Well, in other words, this. If you have known the mercy of God, and you have... You claim Jesus as your Savior, you've known the mercy of God. If you've known the mercy of God, and you've got that kind of love for Jesus because of what he did for you on the cross, and that causes you to love your fellow man as well, that non-hypocritical kind of love, it's going to affect everything you do. And the effect of the effect it's going to produce behavior change. Look with me at verse 9 again. He goes on to say, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, my mom taught me not to hate things. I bet your mom did that for you too and said, don't don't hate things and don't use the word hate. It's a really strong word, but I'm asking you this morning, do you have some things that you absolutely hate? I hate stewed tomatoes. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) That gets a response. Amen. Amen. I I do, and I don't know if it's a reflex from when I was five, six, seven, eight years old. I don't know. Maybe my my mom made me eat them. I'm not sure. But (laughs) I really, I really detest them. I want you to look at this word abhor, the way it's being used in verse nine here. And and it's apostageo. And this particular word means to detest something utterly. Now, my wife has to use tomato in cooking, and she uses whole tomatoes sometimes. And we have these white dinner plates, and I'll tell you what, red, red of a tomato really shows up on the dinner plate when you begin pushing it off to the side and you're using your fork just trying to dissect your food. But I do that because I detest stewed tomatoes. There's just something about it. It causes a gag reflex in me. It's absolutely repulsive. Now <laughs> He's saying thank you in the front row if you can't hear him. (laughs) If Paul had written, hey, new hope, avoid evil. That might moderate our behavior to some degree. That might control us to some point, but God has to go after our taste buds. He knows that we need to be in this place where sin in any form makes you want to Vomit. It's so repulsive to you. And he says there's a danger that your hypocrisy of, of love being mixed together and saying you love God and you love your fellow man, that danger of that hypocrisy it can actually modify the way you respond to evil. There's a, there's a danger there to legitimately love God is to look on evil with horror. Uh, This is on the heels of Halloween, right? We just had Halloween this last week, and I I know a lot of people go to haunted houses. I did that when I was a teenager. I think the haunted houses are a lot worse today than what they probably were back when I was a teenager, but I, I still don't quite understand why people want to be grossed out that badly, but they go to horror houses, and I started thinking about that in relation to what we're looking at this morning. What could be the most awesome, horrible, horror house you could go to today? What if you walked into a horror house and it was full of video screens that was playing over and over and over again on repeat all your failures? Would that not cause you in horror to want to run the opposite direction? I don't want to look at that. It's the last thing I want to see. God says you've got to have that kind of reaction to the things that I call evil. And unfortunately, you and I are part of a culture that's been shaped by Satan. So the reality is, many of us, and I say us, I mean inclusively in our auditorium, I mean in our society, but in the church, we've been lulled into this place of what I would call complacent tolerance for whatever deviant behavior is in vogue in 2018, And this is going to get a little prickly for some of you this morning. Paul says sin has got to be repulsive to us. Not only gross sin, but all sin without any exception whatsoever. So God actually calls it an abomination. And this is precisely how we're supposed to see it. Let me show you on the screen, Proverbs 6.16. He says, there are six things which the Lord hates... Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Don't read Proverbs 6.16 right now, but all seven of the things that are listed there, they all point to sin. And God actually says, those things, they're disgusting to me. Don't be a part of that in any way. So I'm asking myself over this last month while I've been wrestling with this and especially hit me this week, how do I, and I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about Mark Kring. How do I get to the point? How do I get there to that place of righteously hating, especially something so attractive? Because these things that we participate in, we don't participate in them because they're ugly. It's because they're attractive to us. How do I get to that place where I hate it? Because biblically, according to God's words, something just because it's fashionable, or it's profitable and we make money with it, or it's pleasant. It doesn't mean it belongs in my life, nor can I be attached to it just because the world chooses to allow it. So I'm going to ask you right now to begin thinking, we'll come back to this in just a second, what kind of things are you allowing into your life this morning that God might call detestable? Detestable. Because we can point to society and we can look at the world around us. We might even look at our social circle and say, that right there, that's evil. But God says, I'm dealing with your heart. Because you can't really deal with society until you deal with yourself first. Jesus spoke about that. Deal with the log in your own eye before you go after the speck in your brother's eye. So I'm going to ask you, what are you inviting into your own home? Because by its very nature, agape love cannot tolerate unrighteousness. Look with me on the screen. First Corinthians 13, 6. Love, agape, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. So evil is the opposite of holiness. Therefore it's the opposite of godliness. So David comes along and he writes Psalm 9710 Those of you you say you love God, do you hate evil? Do you hate evil things? Because a Christian who genuinely loves is going to genuinely abhor wicked actions and wicked thoughts in any form. And that's why I'm saying this morning, what you love actually dictates your behavior. And that's why Paul struggled with this very real wrestling match. Go back with me to Romans 7. You'll see it on the screen again. I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin, for that which I'm doing I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate, for the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then, check the principle, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. It's not just the evil out there, it's the evil in me. And Paul's not saying, I'm unsaved, I no longer have salvation. He's saying, this is a reality, I have this tension, a wrestling match in my life. But maybe you've read that verse a hundred times. I bet you, some of you have been believers a long time and you've read Romans 7. And you say, yeah, Paul, I identify with that, I get that. But have you ever noticed what's really going on here? When a faithful believer, and I think we would put Paul in that category, wouldn't we, church? Faithful believer. When a faithful believer wanders into sin, do you notice what's going on here? The inner self, the inner Christ, the godly self immediately identifies it. I don't want to be part of that. I don't want anything to do with that. Gag me. It's like stewed tomatoes to me. I don't want that. I find myself doing it, and I wrestle against this because this is not who I am. And here's what I wonder. I wonder in 2018 at what point do you and I reach the place where we become desensitized to the evil around us and potentially within us, the very thing Paul's talking about here. Because we're completely bombarded through social media and through internet activity and through TV and through printed media and through movies and books and, dare I say, yeah, yeah, young people, gaming. We're constantly bombarded with the things that God says, that's detestable to me. And it makes it really difficult to be shocked by anything. So this genuine hatred of evil has got to incite a gag reflex. Oh, yuck! Stew tomatoes, I don't want anything to do with it. See, there's this tension, though, because we live among our social circle. We don't want to come across as holier than thou. How can I protect myself and yet function among the people I hang out with? You've probably heard me before talk about the Pharisees who were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. They were so overcome by the sense that they might be tempted by a beautiful woman that they would actually put not just veils, they would put flower sacks over their head so that they wouldn't look on women when they were walking in public, and they kept bumping into walls and walking into rocks and trees. So they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees, all bruised up, but they wouldn't look on a woman. Well, you've got to be in the world but not of the world. How do you manage that tension? I want to come back to that next week. We don't want to be holier than thou. But here's what Scripture says in First Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, Abstain from every form, every appearance of evil. That's New Testament. You also find it in the Old Testament. Psalms 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the In the seat of scoffers. See the progression there? The reality is you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you cannot flirt with sin and hope to escape it. So it starts with refusing it in the first place. Even the harmless attraction. New hope, don't let it in. Don't let it into your home. Don't let it into your living room. Don't let it into your laptop. How do I do that, Mark? Here's a quick example for you. We will come back to this next week, but in 1 Corinthians, you find Paul writing to this church who's living in Sin City. Even the pagans living in the first century looked upon the city of Corinth with the reality that it was Sin City. It was the Las Vegas of their day. And people knew that if they were within the walls of Corinth, they were going to be exposed to a lot of, dare we say, ungodly things, even though with a pagan mindset, they didn't think of it as ungodly. So Paul's got this church that he writes to in the book of Corinthians. And he says, the reality is you guys are attracted to sexual sin. You're drawn into it because you're living in sin city. And the Bible is really clear. The only safe response to that is to pull out, to remove yourself from that environment. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, flee from it, run from it. And then he finds himself writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22. Timothy's a young man in his 30s, and he says, Timothy, you've got to run. Flee from it. And in the opposite side, you've got to pursue righteousness. Well, here's a reality check for you and I in 2018. It is impossible to pursue righteousness and at the same time tolerate evil, letting it right into your world. And the hard reality is this. I know many believers who entertain themselves with sheer ungodliness, with the thought that goes this way, well, I'm mature enough to handle it. I'm far enough along in my walk with Christ. I can do that. That's a poor excuse. I'll tell you a true story. This happened to me. An individual a number of years ago asked me to look at his computer with him. And I said, what do you want me to see? And he said, I just want to show you something. I don't think you're fully aware of everything that's out there. And I said, what are you describing? And he said, well, there's some... Well, let's just show you. And he took me to the most ungodly, most vile pornographic website you could possibly imagine. And I was so enraged, I turned to him and said, Why are you showing me this? And he looked back at me with disgust and said, I, I thought you were mature enough to handle this. I rarely have come so close to wanting to punch somebody in my life as I did in that moment. There's a song that we used to be taught as kids. Be careful little eyes what you see, right? Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. For the father up above is looking down in love. What are you putting your eyes on? As opposed to saying, I'm mature enough to handle it. Because the reality is there are magazines that are so vile, you wouldn't buy a subscription to them. You wouldn't want them in your home. Yet we might willingly watch a program with thought content, it's just as bad as the magazines. And if it's cleverly written by really good script writers, and they are funny, and they're attractive, if, if we find ourselves in that situation, we can say they're incredibly appealing. But soon you find yourself sucked right in, inadvertently, mentally condoning the very behavior you earlier found reprehensible. You want a good gauge? This is a gauge I've tried to use throughout my life. Could you identify your favorite program or your favorite activity or maybe your favorite video game and invite Jesus to sit with you while you participate in that? Could he sit next to you? And some some of you are thinking, well, that's never going to happen. Jesus isn't going to sit next to me, but he's with you, right? Every place you go, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. But maybe that's a hard one for you to envision, so let me ask you this. What if your grandmother was sitting next to you? Would you, would you be ashamed? Now, some, Somebody invariably over this weekend is going to be thinking, my grandmother watches that stuff. Right? If that's the case, and your grandmother's watching Game of Thrones, you need to talk to her about holiness, right? You need to have a conversation with your grandmother about what holiness looks like. I, I know of a professor, a college professor, who actually scored programs with his children, and here's what it looked like. His teenagers, this might help you if you've got teenagers in your home, his teenagers were bombarding him with a a show that they wanted to watch. All our friends are talking about it at school. How can we relate to them if we can't talk about it too? We want to watch this. And so he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. We're going to score the program you want to watch. And he gave them each 3x5 index card, set them down on the coffee table, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch the show with me. And every single time you see God's commands violated, write it down. And his teenagers did. And they actually made a game out of it. And they found 12 violations of God's standards in the midst of their favorite show. But you know what happened on the backside of that as a result of it? They found it reprehensible. Dad, look at this. And I saw this, Dad. And I saw this one. All of a sudden, he raised the bar of what does God say about the things that I'm allowing to come into my home? Because every deviation from God's standard defiles the mind and new hope. We have the mind of Christ, don't we? That's what Scripture says. We have the mind of Christ, we're supposed to love what he loves and hate what he hates? Can I remind you this morning? He loves people, amen? amen. He does. But he hates sin. He loves people, but he hates sin in any form whatsoever. So i come to the ending here with reminders of Scripture for you. Look with me on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from evil, every form of evil. Here's the last part. This is going to go really quick. Romans 12, 9. Cling to that which is good. Now, Paul has borrowed a word from the the construction world, and he's brought it over into the Bible. This word cling has got the thought of glue behind it, something that's glued. And I don't know if you knew this, but the Romans were really, really good at putting together concrete. They are probably the most advanced civilization at that era using concrete and they understood chemical bonds. Well, that's where this word, this last Greek word in your notes actually comes from, to stick something together to the degree that it actually cleaves together. What's the effect of glue? What's the effect of a chemical bond? Well, the effect of it is to unite something with such tenacity that the two can't come apart without breaking something. So you find this thought used in Genesis 2 when it talks about a man leaving his father and his mother and being united to his wife. It's actually talking about the sexual union of a man and a woman. It's borrowed over into the New Testament in 1 Corinthians. What God has put together, let no man separate the, the union here. In this same way, Paul's saying, when you're brought into contact when you're glued to God and the things that God declares good, cling to it. Don't let it escape. Form an unbreakable union with it. Or what are some of the things that God declares good? If you've found a church that teaches the Bible, cling to it. If you're involved in activities outside of the church, maybe you're helping people at the rescue mission, maybe you serve at a hospital, maybe you teach children, cling to it, New Hope. The reasons he's saying this, whatever the form is that you've got to cling to, the reason we have to hold on, it's absolutely necessary, is because of this inclination that we have to fall back into sin. And the more you cling to what God declares good, the greater you're going to be at defeating this evil. That's why Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. And the things that I do do, I don't want to do. So cling to what is good that you would understand the principle that what you truly love shapes your behavior. And it's going to affect Everything that you do, that's why God wouldn't let me go into verse 10. Because until we really understood verse 9, how are we going to manage these things like being devoted to one another, being persevering in prayer, being generous with the body of Christ? How are we going to be good at showing hospitality if we don't get that down? So here's how I want to pray with you this morning. Hopefully you'll pray with me this way. God, would you make sin stink to me? Would you be good with that? God, make it reprehensible to me. Let's pray, church. God, first of all, we thank you for the reality that regardless of the sin that we've been involved in this last week or maybe even last night, that there's forgiveness in Jesus. Above all, we thank you that we know the grace of our God. But we do find ourselves caught up in a world in which we constantly wrestle against this. So we're asking you, Father, right now, we're actually pleading, would you make sin odorous to us? Let it stink, God. Let us be like Jesus, that we can smell it a long way off, that we can see hypocrisy first in our own life. Deal with us on that issue, Father, that we might be a pure bride before you, a a church that you really want to bless and use in ways that goes beyond our understanding, and let us be a force for your kingdom in this community that you've put us in. So deal with us first, Father. Deal with us in our issue. And this week, even this afternoon, make sin stink to us. Give us a gag reflex, Father. I pray for that in the matchless name of the one who bought us at great price, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people say, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.